This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So the theme of this whole retreat is the meaning of death and eternal life. For this talk, I want to focus on the death that wins eternal life for us, the death of Jesus Christ and our participation in that death. So this talk is going to bring us to the cross and then to the baptismal font and then uh, to everyday life and the strange sort of in-between state uh, that we inhabit as uh, those who have been united to Christ, saved by him, but still uh, struggle along in this valley of tears. So the death of Jesus Christ. St. Peter writes that Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. St. Paul adds, while we were yet helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one will dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received our reconciliation. We're justified, we're made right with God through the death of Jesus Christ. Why? Why is Christ's death so important? Who or what is Jesus Christ that makes his death matter to us more than anyone else's death? Every Sunday we say, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Why does Jesus' death matter? Because Jesus is God. He's God. And for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. Jesus is the God-man. He is true God and true man. In his person, he unites human nature and divine nature in his person. The Book of Wisdom has this really awesome, I can actually use that word because it is talking about God, it's this awesome, awesome description of the word. The Book of Wisdom says, he is the all-powerful word who leaped down from heaven, from the royal throne, into the midst of the land that was doomed, a stern warrior, carrying the sharp sword of God's authentic command, who touched heaven while standing on the earth. Christ is the one who touches heaven while standing on the earth. He is the God-man. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, and Son of Mary true man. So he is in himself the unification of heaven and earth. So why is Jesus the unique mediator of salvation? Why does his death matter for us? Because Jesus is God and Jesus is man. 
So the very heart of the doctrine of the redemption, of what Christ accomplishes through his death and his resurrection, is that the human acts of Jesus, what he does as a man, are the acts of a person who is divine. So a man can do divine things. Why does that matter? Everything that Christ did, everything that Christ suffered, everything Christ experienced has to be seen as being done and suffered and experienced by God. God was born and grew to manhood. God walked around on feet. God was a carpenter. God rejoiced. God sorrowed. God suffered. God died. You can say that. God died in his human nature. He is the one. Christ is the one who can make atonement. That's a funny word, uh, atonement. Uh, if you had to guess its etymology, you could just look at the word. It's, uh, it means at one meant. Atonement. It means making things one. Christ is the one who can do that because that's what he is. He is at one meant. He is unification of heaven and earth, of human and divine, in his person. And that atonement that he is, is accomplished for us on the cross. Because Christ was the atonement before he made the atonement. Because he alone can do something that's, do that's both human and divine. So, why does that matter? So, he can give God an act of obedience in love. And he can do that as a man. And that can counterbalance humanity's sin of rebellion and self-love. So Christ is acting obediently in love when we acted disobediently in self-love. But that human act can have divine value. It can have all the value that's needed, or more, immeasurably more, than the value that's needed to satisfy for the debt of sin. Was that dynamic enough? Okay, good. <laughs> We're going to cut that part, right, Joe? Thank you. So Christ is the reconciler. He's the one who reconciles us with God. And that reconciliation is it's medicinal. It's healing for us. We're being healed. God works through the mysteries of Christ's life to heal us. And it's important to note that this is something God does. It's not something you do. Not something I do. It's a matter of God reaching out to us. It's a matter of the all-powerful word leaping down to us. You know, Hark, my lover comes, bounding over the hills. Christ is you know, eager to come. He says, there's a baptism with which I must be baptized. He's talking about the cross. He says, how I burn with desire. I'm paraphrasing, but how I burn with desire until that is accomplished. He wants to do this. He wants to go to the cross. And that happens on Calvary. And who does this? Christ does this. And Christ is the head of the body, the church. And we are the members of that body. And so we share the fruits of what he accomplishes. More on that in a bit. So again, to recap, why is Jesus the unique mediator of salvation? Why would his death matter? It's because Jesus is God. So I want to look now at a bit of St. Thomas's teaching on this. Uh, if you're keeping score at home, this is Summa Theologiae 3, 48-2. Uh, that's the Tertia Powers, question 48, article 2. Uh, where Thomas asks whether Christ's passion, whether his death, brought about our salvation by way of atonement or satisfaction is the word that Thomas uses. 
And St. Thomas writes that he, so someone properly atones or satisfies for an offense who offers something which the offended one loves equally or even more than he detested the offense. So if you hurt your friend, you need to offer something that's fitting and proportionate to make your relationship right. What Thomas is doing is he's expanding on an argument that St. Anselm of Canterbury made, where St. Anselm essentially, he says that, well, basically humans blew it. Uh, we sinned against God. And if you do that, you incur an infinite debt. And unfortunately, you don't have infinite resources to repay things. Um, so you are in the unenviable position of being a finite being with an infinite debt, uh, which is difficult to get out of. Uh, because you can't make reparation to one who has infinite dignity. If you offend God, it's, you know, it's worse than you know, offending your parents or offending a bishop or, you know, the Pope. Like, you know, it's not good to offend God. You know, it, you incur a big debt when you do that. Um, so you are stuck. And God, in a sense, can't really atone to God. He can't make satisfaction to God because God doesn't need anything from himself. He doesn't owe it to himself. So this is the problem. We need a human, finite being who can make an rep act of reparation that has infinite dignity. This is why Jesus Christ is extremely handy. Uh, this is not the most profound uh, point of the retreat, that Jesus Christ is handy, but that's it. It's quite, uh, it's quite convenient. Um, he's good. So Thomas's expansion of Anselm's argument is that God could save the world by fiat, by just saying it's the case that we are forgiven, because he could do that. He could just wipe away the slate clean, but it's more fitting, it's more merciful, it's more revelatory that he should restore not only the order of grace, but the order of justice. That, And so God becomes human to recreate the terms of righteousness in us. St. Thomas writes that by suffering out of love and obedience, Christ gave to God more than was required to compensate for the offense of the whole human race. So he doesn't just meet it. There's a hymn that uh, Aquinas wrote uh, to the Eucharist. It's called the uh, Adorote Devote, or the Godhead Hearing Hiding, Whom I Do Adore. Um, and there's a part in it uh, where he is speaking to the Eucharist again, and he says, uh, Pie pelicane Jesu domine, me mundum munda tuo sanguine, cuius una stila salvum facere totum mundum quit ab omnichelere. Right? Good, we'll move on to the next one. No. Um, so, what's he saying? He's saying, um, holy pelican, which, P.A. pelicane, pious pelican, which the translation is, you know, it's not as uh, wonderful. It doesn't bring beautiful mystical images of a, I don't know what a pious pelican looks like. Maybe it's like <laughs> a bird with a, uh, a chapel veil on and it's, a, uh, you know, sorry. Um, so, holy pelican, Lord Jesus, mea mundum munda tuo sanguine, cleanse my sins, cleanse my filth by your blood. Cuius una stila, of which one drop, una stila, one drop, salvum facere totum mundum quit ab omnichelere, one drop of which has the power to cleanse the entire world. One drop. And he poured all of it out. He let his heart break open and pour out blood. When one drop would have done it, when one step 
of his foot would have done it, when one gesture of his hand would have done it. So Christ satisfies in a way that is super abundant. Why? Why would he die if he doesn't need to die? Because the passion, the death of Jesus is a human manifestation of the intensity of divine love. God loves you, and Jesus Christ on the cross is the perfect expression of that fact. And it's important to think about that. We don't perhaps spend enough time just thinking about that, that God loves us. And if you don't believe that, if you don't know that, if that doesn't actually become the lens through which you see the world, then you're not living in reality. Like if you think that God can't forgive you, if you think that you've somehow managed to do something that God will just be repulsed by, you're not living in reality, and you need to wake up. God loves you. Deal with it. Live, live in reality. Accept it. You know? He does. He loves you now, you know, in our you know, pathetic state that we're in. Not because we're particularly impressive, but because he's very good. He's very, very, very good. And he loves you because he's good, not just because you impressed him. Okay? It's not like he said, wow, you know, well, Father Corbett is just a really impressive guy. He wears great sweaters. He's just, fan I mean, it's true. It's a great sweater. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, to be clear, it's a wonderful sweater. But it wasn't the case that God looked down and said, that sweater is fantastic. I have to become man to save this, you know, the owner of the sweater. Um, no, it was because we need saving. It's because he's good, not because we're good. So the passion, the death of Jesus shows us that God loves us. It also shows something about how God enters into the mystery of suffering itself. He doesn't just hit a reset button. He doesn't clear the table. What he shows us through the cross is that God enters into it. He's enter he enters into the messiness of evil, the confusion of it, the not making sense of it. And he triumphs over it. He conquers it. It's interesting that Jesus uh, holds on to his scars after his death. You know, he didn't need to. And they're not particularly beautiful in themselves, you wouldn't think, to have like gaping holes in your, you know, right about here. Or just like a hole in your side, holes in your feet. That's not, you would think, particularly beautiful or attractive. But Jesus holds on to them in his glorified body. Like right now, Jesus has holes in his hands. And they're beautiful. Why? These are trophies. It's like he wants us to be proud of them, like you'd be proud of a battle scar. Or the fact that he can show that you can do the worst thing you can do. Because it's very bad to kill God. Very, very bad. It's the worst thing that could have possibly happened in the universe. Happened some 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem. It happened. Like, the worst thing we could do. Objectively. Like, we're not going to do worse than that. It happened. We did it. And it was okay. And he rose from the dead. And he keeps the scars to remind us that he can work through it. He can rise above it. He can heal it. So anything you have in yourself or in your life or that's been done even to you, can be healed, can be transformed by Jesus' death and resurrection. He's not phased by the problems of your life. He's not phased by the injuries you have. He's not phased by 
the darkness that we experience because he is the light. And wherever he goes, there's light, even if it's into our wounds. There's the prayer that we have, um, uh, soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, the anima Christi, that's what it is. Uh, The anima Christi that says, you know, within your wounds, hide me. And it's in the wounds of Jesus that we're safe. How do we get there? How do you get there? So that's all very nice. It's really good that God saved us. Again, this is not the most eloquent thing, but it is good. It's good that God saved us. How do you get there? You get plunged into it. Romans 6, St. Paul uh, says, Do you not know, or are you unaware? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our former man was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what's new about that? That You're baptized into Jesus Christ's death and his resurrection. In baptism, the Christian has already died with Christ sacramentally in order to live a new life. There's only one Christian life. It's Jesus Christ's life, and you get baptized into it. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but how many people, you know, do you remember the day of your baptism? You know, think about that. Uh, it's, uh, it's more important than your birthday, actually. I mean, well, you need to, be, you need to exist, it's true. Um, you need to be born to be baptized. Uh, but the day that you're baptized, you're reborn. You're born again. This is, this is not just like evangelical. This is John 3. You need know, to be born again of water and spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven. You're born again. You have a new life in Christ when you're baptized. Why? Why do you need this water poured over you? Well, Jesus, it's kind of blunt. Jesus said so. Uh, and he instituted it as a way to keep us connected with him. That's the sacraments are portals into the, the heart of Christ, portals into the life of Christ, sockets you can stick your finger into. There's an image for you. Um, yeah. You know, the sacraments are ways you can connect to the electricity of the life of the resurrected Son of God, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus hasn't gotten stale. He hasn't lost any of his power. He's mighty. He's all-powerful. He still stands on the ground and his head breaks into heaven. You can latch on to him. And more than latch on, you can grow into him. You can be brought into him. You can be grafted into him. You can live in him. Or more importantly, he can live in you. The life I live now, I live no longer me, but I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's St. Paul. That's like his creed. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. St. Paul can't escape that truth. It's like his defining fact that Jesus loved him and died for him. And Paul can live in Jesus, and Jesus can live in Paul. If you ever want to read St. Paul in a new way, uh, do some prepositional Pauline theology. Just read St. Paul. Read like Ephesians 1. Read uh, first bit of Colossians, and just look for prepositions when it regards, with regards to Christ. It's pretty awesome. With him, in him, through him. Then the problem is you're going to try to figure out what does like that word I-N mean. And oh, you could, and many books have been written about it, and uh, we're still writing them. But just think about that. You're in Christ, and Christ is in you. Well, what's that mean? You, can spend, you should spend your whole life trying to figure out what that is or what that is like, and more importantly, to have it just be the case. Whether or not you fully understand it is not primarily important. It needs to happen. St. Thomas says when he's thinking about baptism, he quotes Romans 6. In baptism, a man is incorporated in the passion and death of Christ. According to Romans 6, 8, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live together with Christ. And then he says, hence it is clear that the passion of Christ is communicated to every baptized person so that he is healed just as if he himself had suffered and died. I'll read it again. It is clear that the passion of Christ is communicated to every baptized person so that he is healed just as if he himself had suffered and died. He continues, He who is baptized is freed from the debt of all punishment due to him for his sins, just as if he himself had offered sufficient satisfaction for all his sins. And it's not just external. In your heart, it's true about you. It's not that God just says, well, you're really bad, but we'll just, you know, you owe me like, you know, a billion, billion dollars, but we'll just kind of move some money around and then it's fine. You still really offended me, but it's, you know, it's like he goes into your heart and he makes you good as if you suffered and died and offered him something that was infinite. And that really transforms you. It's not that you're just layered over. You're not whitewashed. Like you're actually cleansed, actually forgiven actually vivified, actually good. You're actually good. You're very good. Because Jesus died for you. And he plunged you into his death and resurrection. He loves you. And he wants you to be alive. And life isn't just exterior. It's internal. More importantly, it's internal. It's what goes on in your heart where, you know, you sit there and he sits there and he says, who do you say that I am? And then the Holy Spirit answers, because uh, we don't know how to pray. And the Holy Spirit does. He's very good at praying, so uh, he'll do that for you, too. So that's a very beautiful reality. Uh, but Romans 7 is also still a thing, um, where uh, Paul says, you know, I, I know, essentially, I know the good. I want to do the good, and I don't do it. I do the thing I hate. I do the thing I don't want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this, was it body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. But we still have this issue of, well, okay, so we are, if I'm baptized, I've been plunged into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm united with him as a member of his body. I'm vivified. And I still keep being pathetic and sinning. Uh, why? You know, what's going on there? I thought that baptism cleanses all this. We have this strange 
in-between state, this tension now. Paul talks about this in uh, Colossians 3, where he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Your life is, as a Christian is hidden with Christ in God. And you share in it, but you're also on your way to it. It's strange. Jesus, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And we're still like moving, particularly in the way, on the way, to the truth and the life fully. So we are people on a road, pilgrims, journeyers. Is that a word? Um, whatever, journeyers. Um, should be. Um, you know, we're people who are going on a journey. Uh, we're moving there. Movement is uh, imperfect. We're getting there. But we do still share the seed of what's true. Why doesn't baptism take away everything about sin, though? Thomas, St. Thomas asks this question. He says that baptism certainly has the power to do that, to take away the penalties of the present life, but he doesn't. Even though by their power, by baptism's power, they will be taken away in the resurrection of the body. And he says it's reasonable that God should do this. Uh, Nice, Thomas. Of course it's reasonable. But no. He says it's reasonable. It's a good bet to say that something God does is reasonable. I think you're always going to be right if you say that. Um, why, though, is it reasonable? St. Thomas says, first, because by baptism, man is incorporated in Christ and is made his member. And so, he says, it's fitting that what happens in the head should happen in the body. And then he says, from the very beginning of his conception, Christ was full of grace and truth full of grace and truth, yet he had a passable body. He was able to suffer. So a Christian receives grace in baptism as to his soul, but he retains a passable body so that you can suffer for Christ while you're here, even though you will ultimately be raised up. St. Paul writes, we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, yet so if we suffer with him that we may also be glorified with him. So it's fitting that we should experience what the head experienced. There's another reason St. Thomas gives that it's reasonable. He says it's suitable for our spiritual training, namely in order that by fighting against concupiscence and other defects to which he's subject, man can receive the crown of victory. What's concupiscence? Um, concupiscence is... When you have, it's an inclination to evil that remains as an effect of original sin. The original sin is, the stain of it is removed by baptism. It's still, we have this inclination to evil. Baptism gives us the life of Christ's grace. It erases original sin and it turns man back toward God. But the consequences are that we're still weakened and inclined to evil. And that fact summons us to battle. It summons you to spiritual battle. Something St. Paul's very aware of. He says, I do not fight as though I were shadow boxing. You know, Paul's very belligerent. He's like, I, you know, all the runners in the race run, but one wins. Run so as to win. You know, not shadow boxing. Like Paul is, he's not messing around. He's serious. You get very uneloquent at certain points. Um, so we still have these effects of sin, even though, in Christ, we can be full of grace and truth. We can participate in that fullness, but 
it's fitting that we should share in Christ's sufferings and that we also battle. This tension is also useful because it stops you from an even worse problem of being proud. Uh, it could be very easy if you had no issues whatsoever um, just to get very proud and to think that uh, this wasn't done for you, that it wasn't a gift, that you earned it. So it's good to be humiliated. It's useful. But ultimately, uh, and these are things, are things that uh, especially Professor Marshall will speak about, in eternal life, there will come a time that that stops. Like we're not made for a constant tension. We're not made for battle. You're not made to be tired. You're made for peace. That's going to happen. There's going to come a time when you'll, when you'll be able to stop struggling. There's going to come a time where you're going to stop limping, where you're going to stop hurting. That's going to happen. You know, he's going to come and give that to you forever. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, if Caleb permits, we have time for questions, if he's even in the room. So, uh, yeah, we have time for some questions. Uh, you, you spoke about how we are, uh, we have uh, the passion has been communicated to us, that it's as if we went through that passion uh, and achieved that, that sort of. Um, mm -hmm. This is as opposed to... Uh, other theology I've heard where the, 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 the phrase uh, clothed in Christ mm -hmm. uh, the, the image of Christ covering our sins in heaven uh, so that in some sense God doesn't see all of the, the, the evil that we've done as humans mm -hmm. can you comment on on uh, clarifying or, or, or reconciling sure yeah. Hey, Joe, check this out. I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to repeat the question into the microphone. I've given like four or five talks, and I still have never done it. This is great. So the question was, um, so there are some who will say that uh, the passion, our participation in the passion, sort of drapes a cloth over us, clothes us, you could say, in Christ, so that what is real about us, though our, our wretchedness, our sinfulness, our filthiness, is just hidden. Um and so can I comment a bit more on that is the question? So I think I, I tried to get this a bit more that it go, like grace doesn't just cover you. It goes through you. You are made good. You are, it's not that your nature is destroyed and that you're made into something totally new, but scripture does speak about as if you're a new creation, that you are like, you're healed. And being healed doesn't just mean that your scabs go away. It means that your infection goes away. It's not just you look healthy. It's that you are healthy. And also, God's not interested in appearances. Why? He looks at the heart. You know, Psalm 51 talks about, create a clean heart in me, O God. Put a steadfast spirit within me. You know, heart, like a center, something that's at the core. That's what God cares about. He cares about your core. Core strength is important. Um, uh, we'll have to cut that one. Um, yeah. Okay, thanks, Kyle. I just want to press on that question a little bit. Um, there seems to be some biblical point for this forensic concept, mm -hmm. especially in Romans 23, Romans 4. Sure. And so I think the, I guess the term that needs clarification is justified to justify, and 
You mentioned earlier in your talk that Christ's death and blood, his resurrection, justifies um, a believer. And so, you could clarify, I guess, that I think, I think the problem, the equivocation is really with the, our Catholic con concept of what justification mm -hmm. is. So I was wondering if you could clarify that um, very simply. Great. So Ezra is asking me to simply uh, untangle the fight over the word justification that's been happening since the 1500s <laughs> and before. Um, I refuse to do that because I can't do that simply. Um, the two men sitting here are more qualified to do that too. I'll just say simply, I think one with the forensic thing, you could have both. It's possible that God can like both say like your debt is canceled we're going to transfer the money into your bank account and that you also are going to be made right with me interiorly. I don't see why you have to set these two sides against each other. Why can't you have both the forensic and this like interior cleansing? Why can't that, like, is there a reason that can't be the case? Because it also does seem that we talk about like, I will put a new heart in you. You know, I will replace like your stony hearts and give you natural hearts. Like he talks about replacing the heart a lot. You know, the Holy Spirit's doing that. So, it just seems I'll just I'll just do the classic Catholic. I think it's both and, um, and I will punt to the uh, actual professors later on. You can ask them off uh, off the microphone. So that's what I'll do quickly. Yeah, Jordan. So you mentioned how well, you were talking about incurring an infinite debt because we offended God. Mm -hmm. So is it sort of a philosophical necessity that if you offend an infinite being, it incurs an infinite debt, hmm. or is that just this situation? Okay, so the question is, is it sort of uh, philosophically true that if you offend an infinite being, you do incur an infinite debt? Um, I'm just going to brashly say yes, I think it is. Uh, yeah, I don't really know of, uh, yeah, I, I just think so, but I don't know, Father Corbett, you... What about a, a less than infinite being, uh, but one whose rank exceeds your own? Like an angel, perhaps? No, no, yeah. it's John F. Kennedy. <laughs> Junior? Pardon? Junior? Uh, no, no. no. Okay, okay. Oh, the JFK. Oh, JFK Senior. Okay, yeah. Uh, he's driving down Lake Harvey Oswald, kills him. He's, yeah. uh, but he hasn't just killed uh, a man, he's killed the President of the United States, mm -hmm. and he's offended not only the Kennedy family, he's damaged the whole country and the whole world. Mm -hmm. So, the debt that Oswald incurred by that attack, like uh, it was the it was the position of Kennedy as president that made his offense much worse. Mm -hmm. And that's all that is is an example of how uh, that doesn't appeal to an intuition or an example of how an intuition could be justified. Mm -hmm. Kill a, a, a head of the state and you've taken on a whole nation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it is. Yeah. Apply that to God, and it, it multiplies. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, thanks. So if Jesus suffered for us to repay a uh, debt that we incurred, if he died to end our suffering, why do we need to suffer for his sake? Okay, so if D Jesus died to um, remove our suffering, why do we need to suffer for Jesus? Mm -hmm. Well, Jesus has called us to do that. He said, uh, take up your cross and follow me uh, to be united with him. So that he also permits you to enter into, St. Paul also talks about, I am filling up what is you know, lacking in the sufferings of Christ. This is a very mysterious thing. It's not that it's absolutely fundamentally necessarily lacking, but that there is 
like God wants us to cooperate with him. He wants to. He likes to do this. He like like dads like to build sheds with their sons. Like the sons might not be very good at shed building. It's not like, man, I really don't know how to do the shingle. Come here, Bobby. You're gonna, you know, <laughs> the six-year-old Bobby who can like barely lift up a hammer is like all of a sudden a shingle master. But um, you know, but that you know his dad loves him and wants him to take part in that work. Um, even though the dad can build the shed, he can do it. Um, and I think similarly, God wants us to share in the work of Jesus Christ. And he permits us to enter into his act of love and obedience that he offers to the Father. He lets us share in that so that he permits us to cooperate with him, that Christ lives in him. It's, I think it's ultimately, it resolves into the idea of, it's about participation in Jesus Christ in his life and death and resurrection in a very entire way. That's my, that's again, that's an intuition. Um, it's, if St. Thomas says otherwise, I'm going to have to rethink that. But that's just, that's just an intuition that I have. Um, yeah. I guess, would you say how, um, sort of in the way that, uh, I don't know what period it is, but it's like our, our merits add nothing to the glory of God, but merit, it merits our salvation. Mm-hmm. Almost like that. Like, we're not actually necessarily, like, doing anything to like fill that gap, but like we merit our own salvation, like it affects our souls. Yeah, in Christ, like, you know, you do merit in Christ. I mean, that like, those two words are, you really need to be bolded, underlined, highlighted, italicized, and have an asterisk saying, see all the bolding, italicized, you know, like it's in Christ, but it's real, you're meriting. Like you are meriting, you are earning it in Christ. That's happening. So yeah, you are, again, like participating in his work. He, he wants all of you. He doesn't want you just sort of like he chose. It's not you're just going to sit by and get sort of trust funded to glory. Like you're going to you're going to enter into it. Sorry if you have trust funds. It's fine. Trust funds are. I presume they're very good. You know. So you know. Congratulations if you have them. But you know, it's like it's not your path to glory. Like he does want you to enter into it and merit it. Yeah. If you have trust funds, talk to the Timothy Institute later too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. And then Christianos, Hannah. Great. Infinite good takes on infinite events on the Well, I mean, so in his human nature, I don't think it could be fi- infinite because, like, his human nature, like a creature, just any creature, even the created human nature of Jesus Christ, is finite. So it's, but you could also like, you could do the sort of quasi move. You can say like, as it were infinite, like certainly it's like, it's maxing out. It's, you're not going to like top it, but I mean, it's just, you know, objectively speaking, it can't be infinite because it's creaturely. Um, but then since it's this wonderful thing of that, it's the act of a God man, it's a finite act with infinite value because it's by virtue of the Godhead united to that human nature it is achieving an infinite end. Did, you, did that lead to another question? No, no, no. All right. Christianos? Uh, I want to add to the, the two questions just before that. Awesome. So we had one that was going to lead to another one, but now we have two. <laughs> That's cool. Okay. I'm just uh, trying to compliment theirs because Good. I heard, you know, we can kind of, what's that famous line in Colossians that would probably drive most presence bad where Paul's like, I want to fill up the suffering that is lacking in Christ. That's in like Colossians 1. Sure. 
I don't know. If, I don't know where it is, but I know that it's yeah. Okay. And we can make a distinction between like the objective side of the passion, which has that infinite merit, and the our subjective entering into it. Sure. And what I took from the earlier part of your talk is that Christ's passion, the way it goes, is fitting because it shows His love for us. And that's just going back to Romans five. This is really interesting because then following that, and then later he says in after Romans seven and Romans eight. He does that. Romans 8, 18, if anyone wants to know, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing any start getting to all the, the travels and the waiting for becoming the sons of glory mm -hmm. and all the creation. So I think what I'm getting into is like how we're glorified by that suffering also like redeems us into this new creation. Mm -hmm. So Christianus is asking uh I think I'm asking how the... Essentially about like the sort of weight of eternal glory that yeah, we suffer under. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that is true, that we are suffering here, but that we're, yeah, about a weight of eternal glory. <laughs> I don't know how to... I mean, you just kind of gave me a book. I don't know how to say. Um, yeah, Kyle. Um, should... We recognize our baptism, and if we don't recognize our baptism, what is the uh, the event in there? So, mm -hmm. if you're baptized as a baby, mm -hmm. let's say you grow up, you were, you never knew you were baptized. Yeah. Um, what's the difference between me getting baptized tomorrow and being baptized as a baby? Sure. Yeah. Um, so certainly, uh, yeah, it's something that it's like life has begun, but life needs to continue. Like you know. We don't just like once you're born, you're wonderful and you're very cute and it's great, but you need to grow up and learn to like, you know, fend for yourself and do all the other necessary parts of people. So like this is a, a life that's begun is intended to grow. And you do need like you're baptized. A baby is baptized in the faith of the church, like with the church, you know, standing there and supplying this faith. And then the, the child needs to grow up. That's why you have more sacraments. You have confirmation, which is a, like a, a sacrament of maturation of coming to adulthood, of coming to strength, and the ability to stand on your two feet and witness to what you believe. Um, so there is definitely a trajectory that baptism establishes you in that you need to continue to grow. So you have sacraments throughout the whole structure of life. You know, birth to death, it's there. Um, and it's meant to help you flourish. Um, and you know, so, but if an adult is baptized, he immediately um, is plunged into, and he's also immediately uh, confirmed. Uh, and then we, I'm not, do not ask me questions about when people should get confirmed right now. We're not going to, uh, <laughs> we're not going to have that part of the question, but, um, but yeah, it is important to, um, to, to acknowledge it, to think about it, to make acts of faith in it and to be confident in the grace that's given you in your baptism, that it's a fact, even if you don't remember it, it happened. And that means that something has been established in you. It's like it, baptism gives you a character. Like it's like a seal that is, a. Uh, um, not obliterated and that is still it can re you can you know, access it again even if you like haven't thought about it for years and years and years it's still there and can be revivified uh father corbett you're starting to inch your hand up so uh, yeah uh, i was wondering if you have any comment on the recent uh events uh regarding baptismal formula would you refresh my memory yeah there were a couple of priests who oh gosh yeah <laughs> The, the family video, the home video, like, let's kick back and watch your baptism? Uh, no, oh, that, no, no, no. Oh, no? This is what a priest who... We're going to... Very simple change of words. 
Um, we baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you know that this is going on, please call your bishop. Okay, yeah. Um, the priest was one with goodwill, not not one who was trying to start any trouble. He but he did this. Now, suppose he baptized somebody twenty years ago with that formula. We baptize you. The Pope has said, or uh, the the, the Vatican has said, it's invalid. Mm -hmm. It's an invalid baptism, but this guy's been swimming along in what he thought was baptismal grace all these years. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you make of that? That somebody can have an experience of grace and at the same time have an invalid baptismal formula? Um, you know, again, you know, this isn't dogma, but um, so if, feel free to quote me, but quote me, not like the church. So when I say that, I think that um, uh, I think it could be believed also that God is not going to leave you in the lurch as it were, and that he, he binds him, and also that he binds himself to the sacraments, but he's not bound by them either. You know, it's not that like, this has to happen or else nothing good. I mean, it is possible for God to act in extraordinary ways, even if he establishes ordinary ways for you to be saved. Uh, it doesn't denigrate the ordinary ways, which are good, but that he can also do that, um, and that his grace can be active, and it seems that this happens. Oh, uh, yeah, Ben. Do we know that God has acted in extraordinary ways? Like, for instance, well, Jesus became man, so yeah. <laughs> in the sense of, like, we got guys going outside the church to save people, but you might not. Like, for all we know, it could be the case that everybody who's not Catholic has not gone to heaven. I doubt that, but I'm not talking about my feelings. I'm just talking about what it is. Yeah, I think, uh, so the question is, um, can we know that... Uh, someone who is not baptized has been saved. I would just say, I mean, can we know that anybody is saved? Like, you can't, like, you as a creature can't, like, know that in the sense, like, you can't make that judgment. God makes that judgment. We can certainly have, like, well-founded opinions about what is and isn't possible, but I can't, like, look at Joe and, and know, like, what's going... Sorry, Joe, I mean, you know, you're on the staff, so I get to pick on you, but, uh, you know, I can't, like, say, I can't look into his heart and decide, like, well, he's right with God, he's not right with God. I can make inferences. I can think like Joe's a you know very admirable, virtuous, seems to be a very virtuous man. Um, he stole my plant, but that's fine. Uh, you have to give it back uh, eventually. Um, but no, I mean it's just I think it's just simply to say that uh, God is the judge, and who are we to judge our neighbor? Like we just don't know. We can't know. Uh, yes, Professor Marshall. Um, we'll make this the last question too. About Which number is that? Yeah, Gaudium Spes 22. Yep, 22. Mm -hmm. That every human being has a real opportunity to participate in a saving way in a pastoral mystery in a yeah. way known to God. The Holy Spirit gives every human being the opportunity for salvation. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a pretty emphatic assertion that we do know. Mm -hmm. That God works outside yeah. of the ordinary music. Actually, I'll go, if I may, one beyond uh, Gaudium et Spes, and I'll just say uh, Jesus Christ says, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. That thief on the cross was not baptized. So, yes, we can know that it happens. I take back everything I just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah but, like, but we can't know, but, like, but I can just say yes, because Jesus told that thief, the unbaptized thief, that he would be with him in, in paradise. Uh, great. It's uh, we're past time, um, so thank you. And uh, we are now going to.